show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I am Tim and I am joined by my drinking buddy, Ellery. What are we serving today? Yes, what a good sound. Yep, champagne is I've got an easy IPA. <laughs> easy IPA. An easy IPA, which is very nondescript mm-hmm. and um, no idea. But we're talking about IPAs today. Yeah, we are. Um, All sorts of IPAs. I've got, so I've got two drinks with me, um, mm. just because it's been that kind of day. Uh, no, 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 for a very specific reason. So the first one I've got, I would say, is the typical kind of IPA you're going to find in the country today. It's Specifically, this is a uh, cold hand, cold IPA from Dark Revolution, who are a brewery in Wiltshire. And it's uh, about 5.5%. It is made with Pilsner yeast. And it has got hops of Simcoe, Citra, and Mosaic, aka American hops. So, uh, spoiler alert, this is pretty much an American IPA, but it is British. And then, okay. I've got another drink, which I'm going to break open once I finish this one. And that is called Awful, which you may have heard of. It is a Belgian Trappist Ale. Why is Tim drinking a Belgian Trappist Ale for an episode of IPA? Uh, <laughs> has he lost his mind? Did he not have enough not? IPA? Did he just pull something out of the fridge? Let's find out. <laughs> mm. Did you want to say anything before I kick off with the histories about yours? Or are you no, done? I'm, I'm enjoying the beer too much. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Mm. Okay, so first of all, I think these days most people um, through the craft beer movement are aware that IPA, India Pale Ale, is not a pale ale that's come from India. It was exported to India. It was highly hopped for the long journey. It was a pale ale, put lots of hops in it, takes a long journey out to India. I think most people know that much, right? Would you agree? Yeah, I knew that. (laughs) But then I have done lots of research for this podcast. Yes, exactly. So (laughs) what I thought I'd do is say, yes, that's true, but let's dig into a few more details. So why were we exporting to India in the first place? So the East India Company was set up in 1599. Um, I'm not going to say to trade with India (laughs) because we're in a world where we should be very aware of post-colonialism. Yes, it is going to be that kind of conversation. Um, So they were a private company who invaded India, pillaged their resources, mostly based from Bengal. They taxed the citizens, they used their cheap labour, they stole their antiquities and many other atrocities. So let's just get that out of the way. IPA was not the British introducing a tasty beverage to the people of India. It was imported for the sake of the upper class of military and civil servants. Um, By the way, did you know, you you might have done because you're doing your research now, but the East India Company um, created the term civil servants, specifically to distinguish it from the military employees, um, which at uh, at the time is about a quarter of a million people, which was twice the size of the British army. So this private company had an army that was twice the size of Britain and created the term civil servants. (laughs) There you go. Um, 
Prior to the invasion, India was the world's economic powerhouse, without a doubt. It had a quarter of global manufacturing compared to England's 3%. So the East India Company had this founding charter. This is the entire reason they existed, make no mistake, which specifically stated it would wage war, install puppet governments and pay them off to expand their armies and take more resources. It's probably the biggest acts of corporate violence um, in history, unless you count contemporary environmental violence, but let's not do that today. Um, So as, (laughs) as famine hit Bengal in the 1770s, the East India Company were taxing them to the tune of over £300 million in today's money. They were, they were dying of famine. They were paying that much money in tax. Uh, the East India Company set up opium factories, which fueled addiction and further conflict. They licensed other European countries to plunder the country too, which is so mad when you think about it. Like, you're already committing an illegal act, but let's, you know, let's sell license to do that. Um, the first... British governor of Bengal was called Robert Clive. And the only fact I'm going to tell you about uh, this person is that his wife had a ferret that wore a diamond necklace worth over a quarter of a million pounds. Wow. I feel like that's the only fact you need to know about Robert Clive. Yeah, I've, I've got my stereotype in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've, which, you know, it is funny because it's absurd, but it's also absolutely horrendous. Um, so I said it was a private company uh, and not an invasion by a country. But in the 19th century, a quarter of MPs were active shareholders. And likewise, a quarter of all British government domestic expenditure came from this money, which resulted in the building of London's Docklands. And if I'm going to be satirical about it, I might say arguably that continues. Um Actually, do you know what? It's I, I will I will tell you. I won't name the company because um, it, legals and also it's my job. But I was doing some um, <laughs> diversity and inclusion training in in Docklands in Canary Wharf for a financial institution, and um, you know they're they're talking about uh, all the good things they want to do to be inclusive and ethical and all that sort of stuff. And the very room that we were doing the training in wall-to-wall was covered with pictures of the East India Company. And I just, I brought it up. I was like, do you really think, (laughs) like, do you really think you've kind of nailed some of the reparations you need to do here? Could we maybe start by taking these pictures down? And they they had no idea. They were just nonplussed. But anyway. Um, So uh, the East India Company's monopoly was abolished in 1813. But the British occupation continued until 1947. So it wasn't that any of this sort of stuff stopped at 1813. It was just that the East India Company's monopoly uh, was brought to a halt. Uh, And of course, the colonial legacy lives on. There is still an East India club in St. James's Square in London. It does live on in some form. Why anybody would want to be a member is beyond me. But obviously, people are disgusting. Um, shall yeah. we get back to the drinks before my head explodes Please, from it's, rage? Please, get in a bit, yeah. I know, but I had I have to give you this background because so <laughs> many people think, oh, IPA, yeah, that was what we shipped off to India, and they don't necessarily understand the full context of it. I think it's quite important. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, back to the drinks. London Porter was actually the drink of choice for most of the military um, that were that were over in India. 
and the pale ales were reserved for the captains. So that was the more expensive drink. It was reserved specifically for the upper classes. So not everyone was drinking IPA. So this idea that actually it was invented as a style to survive the voyage um, is just not true. Because the porters <laughs> were surviving just fine as well. In fact, there's, I've, um, in Joseph Banks's diaries, he talks about opening uh, some porter after a year um, traveling and how it still tasted really good. And he had it with some Cheshire cheese that he'd been saving in his uh, his lock safe. Um, and actually, on that note, you know, over a year ago, um, I made some porter. We did a porter episode. Oh, yeah, Gregory I, Porter. Gregory Porter. Well, I, I held on to um, a few bottles, just a few bottles, because um, when we made it, the guy said, oh, it'll last a year. So I thought, I'm going to wait a year and see what it tastes like after that. And it was still delicious. So there mm. you go. That's that's a bit of myth busting that it, IPA was created to survive the voyage because actually plenty of beers were surviving the, the voyage. Um, so, yes, there were more hops put into it, which is a preservative. So it did help kind of keep that freshness. Dried hops at that were added because they preserved the beer. Um, but the thing we need to also take into account is the yeast that was used because it was Brettanomyces. Now, the yeast episode was a long time ago, right? Um, but that's the the British yeast, as it is named, because that's where it was kind of first found in, in a British ale. And it's distinctive because as it develops, it has these really unique um, dry flavours and it does it more slowly than the Saccharomyces. So the Saccharomyces, that you know, you're getting your Pilsners, for example, which I've got in the current IPA I'm drinking, tends to leave things a little bit sweeter. But the Britannomyces eats all that sugar, and it's really dry, and it has quite a different flavour. But because it develops slowly, what happened with the long journey for the IPA is it really gave Britannomyces the time it needs to develop in a way that it doesn't necessarily if you're using that yeast at home, but you're drinking it fresh. So that's why it was sort of extra tasty, really, and why it gained in popularity. It's not just because it preserved freshness. It's because it had the time to develop um, this new flavour and become even tastier. Um, some people think as well that it was a stronger beer, that it was made more alcoholic um, for, for the journey or, you know, the yeast processing the time it went over. It wasn't. It was about the same strength as the porter that was going over, which was about the same strength as the beers they were drinking domestically. And that was around 7%-ish um, at that time. Um, and that leads me to tell you why I'm going to open Orville while you're talking. That is because, as I, as I said, the IPM drinking is very American influence. It's American hops. It's Pilsner yeast. But Orville, this, this Trappist Belgian beer, is made with Britannomyces yeast. So it's it's got the British yeast in it. It doesn't have American hops in it. And it's about 7%. Which means that the Trappist Belgian beer is actually much closer to what the IPA of the time was. And that's why I wanted to have a comparison between what we drink as IPA now and what would be quite close to what they were drinking as IPA then. That's why mm. I got it. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought about it. It's not just random. <laughs> <laughs> so among the first brewers known to export beer to India was George Hodgson's Bow Brewery. Now, you will you will read a lot of stories of people thinking that George Hodgson invented IPA. <laughs> you know, this idea that, oh, yeah, he put all the hops in and stuff. He invented it for the voyage. No, 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 he didn't. There were plenty of people making pale ale uh, to be exported long journeys that were putting hops in. 
it might not have been called IPA or India Pale Ale at that time. In fact, it, it wasn't, I think, until about the 1820s or something. But certainly people were making it with this style before. The reason he's become so well known is because he was making, um, his brewery was at Bow, which is only a couple of miles up the River Lee from East India docks. So it was really easy to transport to uh, the ships that, that were going over there. First of all, it was the easiest transport, so that cuts, cuts costs. In addition, George Hodgson's real innovation was that he gave credit for up to 18 months, which meant that the ships didn't have to buy the beer up front and then go and sell it later. They could fill their ships with as much beer as possible, and then they could go over, sell it, do all the trading, steal some things, come back, and then pay off later. So it gave him a real advantage, the fact that he offered that credit. And that's really the reason why we associate him most strongly with the IPAs, because he had the cheapest offering for these greedy, greedy people. Mm -hmm. um, at the time as well, it was called October Beer. I've mentioned that in a previous episode. Um, that I say the name change doesn't really come till later. Uh, and the conditions, as I've, I've said, really benefited the Britannomyces, so that's why it became so popular as well. Um, his, um, his, his monopoly on, on supplying the beer didn't last forever because, uh, well, they got, they got greedy. Um, they decided that rather than just selling to the East India Company, they could actually send their own ships over and sell directly and make more money that way. So they stopped supplying the East India Company. Um, and around the same time, a few of the, the Burton breweries, which um, we know were very good Burton breweries because of the water they use there, the Burton Snatch, always never missed opportunity <laughs> to talk about the sulfurous Burton Snatch. Um, they lost their existing export market, which had been Europe, um, Scandinavia, Russia, because of the Napoleonic blockade. Because of the wars that happened, they, they lost all that business. They were looking for a new export market at around the same time that uh, the London market was trying to rinse the East India Company, and so it switched to them. Um, so the East India Company asked Allsop Brewery, first of all, um, to develop that strongly hot pale ale that they'd been accustomed to. And other Burton brewers joined in as well, Bass and Salt. And as we now know, they didn't know why at the time, we do now know why, because of the water, their version tasted even better. Because London water is really good for the dark ales, the, the chalky water, but the Burton water is excellent for pale ales and for IPAs. So that became even more popular um, domestically then. So Britain really caught on to that exported version of the taste in the 1840s. Um, but then, as happens throughout that century, throughout the 19th century, it starts to lose its strength. It starts to lose a bit of that extra hoppiness. And we end up um, in the episode that we did on bitters. On bitter, in fact. We did it on bitters and bitter. But um, you essentially <laughs> get back to that story. So a few months ago, we did an episode on bitter. You can continue that story over there if you want. An IPA declines in popularity throughout the 20th century. It doesn't completely die off, but it's it's really, it's, it's certainly not there um, in either its current or old form. Um, and then the revival of IPA really goes back to, um, well, what started with the real ale movement in the 1970s and then turns into the crafts uh, movement. The, the legend here in this country is that in 1990, um, a guy, a, a publican called Mark Dorber, set up 
um, a, a seminar on Burton Pale Ales in Parsons Green. That led to the Pale Ale Festival in 92, and then the next year they themed it on IPA. So in 1993, the IPA Festival. That's when all the recipes really start getting going again. Bass Brews, actually it's 7.2% beer. Um, so they're trying to recreate some of the um, originals, uh, the original recipes from the 19th century. Uh, they had an IPA conference, which sounds great, uh, in 94 at Whitbread's Brewery in London. And that's the one that attracts more of our overseas friends. So the Americans kind of after, you know, one year after the first one in 94, they hear about it, they come over, they start looking at the recipes, they start experimenting. And really in the 21st century, it's the US that then drives forward the new version of IPA and is the most popular IPAs that we drink in this country now, even when they're British, are still American, really. Um, I think the, the second biggest selling craft beer in this country is Brewdog's Punk IPA. And that's very much leading on from what um, the US did with them. And at that point, I'm going to stop talking about history. I'm certainly not going to rage about post-colonialism, at least for a few minutes, and um, <laughs> let you take over the other side of the ocean. Yes. As you said, USA, USA, they got involved. Um so yeah, you mentioned it wasn't until that kind of re-emergence of the IPA and ultimately the craft beer movement that saw America really get involved. Um, so that kind of modern American boom of the IPA is usually traced back to one particular beer, and that's the Anchor Liberty Ale. Um, so that was brewed in, it was brewed in 1975, which is kind of earlier than what you said, but I'll explain why. Um, so it was a 6% ale, originally brewed by Anchor, Bean, uh, Anchor Brewing Company. So the owner of that company had visited British breweries in London, Yorkshire and Burton, as you said. They were all doing it well. Um, he'd picked up lots of information about pale ales um, and he used that then when he made his own American version. Um, so he used just malt rather than the malt and sugar combination that were being used overseas. Um, he made prominent use of a new American hop at the time called Cascade, which we still see a lot of now. Um, and it resulted in a beer that was very floral. It was full of grapefruit bitterness. It was very different from the kind of lager that everyone was drinking over there. Um, but it didn't have the name IPA. He didn't call it an IPA. So although he'd essentially created one, he wasn't selling it or marketing it as an IPA. But it had just set a new benchmark for what essentially an American paler could taste like. Um, so that inspired um, Jack McAuliffe um, the following year, 1976. He was um, brewing his new Albion ale with the new Albion Brewing Company. And his was inspired by the ales that he tasted in Scotland. Um, so the beer was at the time vigorously hopped with American Cascade hops, much like the um, Anchor Liberty. Um, it was re-fermented in the bottle and it wasn't straw in colour. So that was totally different to, again, the beer style at the time, um, pale lagers. Um, the company brewed for less than six years and they only did seven and a half barrels per week. So it didn't really get much traction, but it still kind of inspired lots of pioneers and imitators. Um, but it took about five or six years beyond that for it to really kick off. The first brewery to really successfully commercialise 
and use the American hops in the style and kind of launch the whole American pale ale movement was Sierra Nevada. Um, I think that's probably one of the most popular ones still to date. You still see Sierra Nevada. It's delish. Um, so the first batch was brewed as an experiment in November 1980. And um, they distributed the final version in March 1981. Another pioneer worth mentioning is the Burt Grant of Yakima Brewing. Not as well known as Sierra Nevada, but at the time was one of the pioneers. Um, so it gradually became a kind of weapon for craft brewers then against the conglomerates. And as you said, by the 90s, it really did take off. You had the Lagunitas IPA, Stone IPA, lots of new flavours, citruses, lots of pine flavours. Um, that's when the West Coast then really started to emerge as a kind of stylistic trailblazer of the American IPA. Um, the Lagunitas guys were the first ones who seasonally used fresh picked hops. They were greener, they were more delicate, they were... Kind of created a new they created their new category of IPA using the fresher hops harvest ales um, but obviously it wasn't solely a west coast thing the east coast was emerging you had harpoon IPA in 1993 Brooklyn East IPA in 1995 they were the kind of early emergers and then more popular now still goose IPA 1997 they're still holding it down really well for the midwest um, these early examples were quite restrained, <laughs> uh, but you know I've just mentioned some of the big names and the big hitters. There were so many breweries doing it, microbreweries, craft brewers, there were so many flooded to the market. They all wanted to stand out and so they started to really push the IBU, which is the International Bitterness Unit that you have in beer. Um, so they really used to push the IBUs and also the alcohol a lot higher as well. So by the 2000s, you had one called Russian Rivers Pliny the Elder, which is described as resinous as a pine tree, and it clocked in at 8% ABV. That became the archetypal double IPA. Then they started to get stronger. The triple, which was 10 to 12%, the quadruple, which was beyond that. Uh, and people used to get a bit frustrated then because they were kind of pushing the upper limit of drinkability and flavour. <laughs> it was just what can we show in this and how can we outdo that microbrewery and how can we get ours stronger and so it got to a point where it was a bit hit or miss whether or not a new beer was going to be nice or not um, but thankfully over the last decade or so it's gone through like another evolution and that's kind of launched this new craze of session IPAs. Um, the first one there the founders all day IPA is often credited with launching that so that was first released seasonally in 2010 and then it was year round by 2012 um, it was full flavoured but lower alcohol which meant you could session IPA it <laughs> uh, simultaneous northeast brewers like Hill Farmstead the Alchemist and Main Beer Company started making hazier juicier IPAs that were a lot smoother to drink so that bitterness was really not looked for. <clears throat> so brewers turned this trick with freshly developed fruit forward hops such as Citra, Mosaic and Galaxy, still really popular today. Mm -hmm. um, the grains they used included wheat and oats. I think the one I'm drinking is wheat. Yep, yeah, wheat. Lots of wheat, lots of oats. 
Um, and the addition of hops at the brewing's end, heightening the aroma and flavour without that bitter bite. Um, there was a nice quote, actually, that uh, one of the brewers said, you know, they kind of, they like to experiment now, but they're experimenting to make things taste nice and taste sessionable. Um, it's not just, you know, how many hops can we get in this? How much bitterness? It's more, you know, we're going to add a bit of lactose and emulate a milkshake or we're going to use fresh grapefruit they're really pushing boundaries um and this brewer's quote said it doesn't always have to be a big arduous heavy resin bomb <laughs> an ipa should be tasty and drinkable <laughs> mm -hmm. um it doesn't surprise me so though, that it did go down that route sorry to interrupt you because it doesn't surprise me that mm -hmm. it did go down that route though because i think what you got to remember about the big resurgence of well, they called it IPA, it might not have been traditional IPA, but, you know, what happened in America is that although we didn't have full craft options in the UK, mm -hmm. we did still have, you know, bitters and stouts and a bunch of other things going on um, in, the, in the real ale scene, whereas the American beer <laughs> was basically brown water. <laughs> so it doesn't mm -hmm. surprise me that they went completely the other way before figuring out that there was a happy medium because it was... It was a protest, really, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mentioned as well um, some of the West Coasts versus East Coast. They're you know different breweries, different types. Do you know much about the difference between the two, East Coast and West Coast? IPAs? Are you going to ask me questions about Biggie and Tupac? Uh, no, we're not having a hip hop 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 off here. Hip hop 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 off. <laughs> hip hop 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 off. Uh -huh. Uh, but how much do you know about the difference between East and West Coast IPAs? I mean, I know it's mostly about hops and bitterness and fruitiness. Um, mm. But please do illuminate me whilst I actually mm. finally dig into this um, this Belgian beauty. You've got some good head there. Mm. Well, it's Belgian. It's, <laughs> it's at least half head. Um, East Coast, West Coast. Okay, so there is a big difference and they take it very seriously. Um, in my research, I found quite a bit of shade thrown at the UK for getting it wrong. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I will dig in. So as you said, hops is a lot to do with hops. Uh, they are primarily grown in three states in the Cascadia area of North America. So you've got Washington State. It's in the Pacific Northwest on the western border with Canada. That state grows 75% of all the hops in the country, with its capital in Yakima. The next two largest producing states are Idaho and Oregon, both adjacent to Washington. So those three states account for over 90% of the US hop harvest. So it's no coincidence that the craft breweries near there wanted to you know, create really hop-forward versions of the IPA, just as the style started to take off. Um, the West Coast as well, they pride themselves on being very creative, very laid back, not trying to please anyone. Uh, and they claim that's why um, they they kind of embraced beer cans very well. Like back in the mid 2000s, a lot of breweries were experimenting with canning, but the proper reality really took off on the West Coast of US and Canada. Um, obviously, drinkers appreciated the improvement in quality, the carbon footprint, but obviously a lot of outdoor types there, and they just loved the fact that they could grab a crushable can of beer and take it camping, fishing, kayaking, whatever they were doing. And that love of freedom, fresh air, and tasty IPA 
it's kind of integral to the West Coast West Coast personality. Um, so back to American style IPAs. So generally, as you said, they always make the fruit and pie notes of the local hops at the front and centre with a little bit of bitterness to back it all up. But there is a distinct difference between the East and the West Coast. So the East Coast styles tend to have a touch more malt and body. Um, they show their brewer's love of balance while still being a little bit hoppy. In the 1990s, lots of brewers made hop-forward styles and brewers like Brooklyn and Goose Island exemplified that kind of core East Coast style. Whereas, understandably, due to all the hops being grown in the West Coast, they wanted to shout loud and proud about all the hops that can be found in that part of the country. So there were no holes barred when it comes to talking about the hop flavour and the bitterness. Um, that created a kind of sub-style and that was here to stay. So you've got your Sierra Nevada, Lagunitas, Stone, um, smaller breweries like Driftwood's Fat Tug IPA. <laughs> Do you like a fat tug? <laughs> That's, uh, I love a fat tug. You'll find it on the west coast of Canada. Um, so yeah, they, they created their own very much unique styles. But then there's the spanner in the works, which is Nipa, they're often referred to. So Nipa, or sometimes they're referred to as hazy IPAs, um, they are IPAs made in New England. Now, although New England is on the east coast, they have a very distinct kind of different style, brewing process, flavour to east coast ipas um, they're softer they're cloudy they're a lot more tropical less bitter um, and over the last dec decade they've started to push the more kind of classic american style into the shade they've taken over a bit and as i said they're often misnamed east coast by many and i've got in brackets in my notes here especially in the uk everywhere i looked they were like often in the uk you will buy something that's labelled East Coast, but you taste it and it's definitely Nipah or Hazy. It's not East Coast. They get very annoyed about that. Yeah, because <laughs> our interpretation is it's on the East Coast as opposed to yeah. it's in the style of the East Coast, which are different things. Yes. Yes. Um, but the West still holds zone. I mean, Nipahs have kind of caught the eye of a lot of people, rightly so. They are tasty. Um, but over the last few years, there's been a massive resurgence in interest in... West Coast IPAs. This is purely anecdotal, but I think it might be because I think it might be coming full circle again and they're going a little bit too crazy with the flavours. I've had some really weird craft beers in the last <laughs> few months and I'm like, mm, might just stick to what I know. And I think a good West Coast IPA is good. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always doing well. Um, and it's had a bit more of a renaissance in... Uh, the last few years and thankfully it's been taken up by lots of breweries on both sides of the Atlantic so I think I had a beer last night actually which was brewed from a Bristolian brewery and that was a West Coast IPA style mm -hmm. and I'm guessing yeah this easy IPA I mean it tastes a lot like a West Coast IPA and it's using the hops and wheat that I've talked about so it's very popular and it's being replicated over here just make sure you label it right so the key is, look at the ingredients and infer the style from that rather than necessarily mm -hmm. where it comes from. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of the um, brewers and kind of journalists and people I was reading into when I was researching, they will often talk about 
beers that they're brewing and they'll say it doesn't taste like a west coast it doesn't taste like an east coast or you might drink this and think that it's a west coast mm -hmm. but actually so it's all about the flavors and the hops and the processes that they use um but yeah there's no one better than the other it's subjective it depends what sort of type of flavors you like what you're in the mood for i mean at their cores um a West Coast IPA highlights bitterness over everything, whereas East Coast IPAs strike a balance between a malty sweetness and a hoppy bitterness. They're easier to drink, I guess. Um, West Coast IPAs are dry and they've got quite an aggressive bitterness. An East Coast IPA is sweeter on the front end, which will fade, and then you get a little bit of bitterness from the hops. Um, and as I mentioned, although East Coast IPAs and the New England IPAs aren't cinemas, the two beer styles often get lumped together. Uh, with regard to the flavour of the New England IPAs, they're distinctly juicy. They can sometimes taste like you've bitten into a fruit. They're very, very juicy. And any bitterness from those, it's not as hoppy. It's more like you've bitten into like fruit and the rind is still on. It's that mm -hmm. kind of bitterness rather than a hoppy bitterness. So those are the three different American style IPAs. I think my favourite's the Nipa. I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I like all of them, but I, I think um, some of the uh, more experimental Nipas have gotten quite... Um, it, it's like you could put a crumble on top of and eat it. It's like, it, it tastes like stewed fruit soup um, sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, while you were doing your section... Um, I opened my awful and I've had a taste. I'm not going to do tasting notes because mm -hmm. that's not what we're about. But I will confirm because this is supposed to taste like the original IPA. It is very different. Very different. Mm -hmm. um, the, the main thing I'll say is it. you are tasting that Britannomyces yeast. So it's very dry. I know you love the word mouthfeel. Um, so <laughs> it's it feels more like you're drinking a wine. If you were to close your eyes and kind of not taste the beer stuff, it's got that kind of, do you know what I mean? Um, like a very a very yeah. dry wine kind of thing, but it's really delicious. It's not, It hasn't got, I did enjoy hasn't the, got the punch in the head Belgian uh, style. It's very drinkable, like an I, like a IPA, uh, but yeah, with a different flavour. I enjoyed the face you made when you had your first sip. Mm. It's really good. Orgasmic. It's very good. <laughs> so... Um, I wanted to make sure we spoke a little bit about India, India beer. not just the invasion mm -hmm. of India, but Indian beer. Um, <laughs> so just a few little things. Um, beer has been made uh, in India for thousands of years. We didn't introduce it, but it was made usually from rice or millet. Um, you can read uh, about beer in the Vedas. So that's the ancient Sanskrit religious texts of india they talk about it it was um sura they generally call it there and it was the favorite drink of the god indra indra very prominent god um uh, in in ancient india it was sort of you know sky and thunder and all that sort of stuff you know the, the sort of the main gods um rice beer or handia um, as it's otherwise known has been traditionally prepared by quite a few indigenous tribes of india as well so even aside from the vedas and we know that they would also add, uh, well, 
proper name, Ruelia sufriticosa, which is wild petunia. They would add that for flavour. So like might we, we might do for, with hops, you know, kind of that, that floor mm. bit, that's some wild petunia to it to flavour it. Um it's um it, it, in in India there's kind of like this is this reputation of oh we should crack down on alcohol drinking because it's bad. But obviously, as we probably know for our explorations for more rural communities that drink it, it's an excellent way to get their B vitamins. So they were avoiding berry berry by drinking this handier and this this rye beer and all this sort of stuff. And certainly saying, you know, you should curb that drinking. It's not a good idea unless you have a replacement for that. Um, 1820s, Lion Beer is Asia's first beer brand. So obviously it's made, you know, um, domestically. But its first kind of like commercial version is called Lion Beer in the 1820s. Its production first started... Um, at a European-style brewery, Casale. I think it was founded by a British guy, but it did it did come into Indian ownership. Um, and they started with the India Pale Ale. So, obviously, they saw the opportunity to, you know, sell to the British administrators and, and troops, and they thought, well, we can do our own version of this. It doesn't just need to be imported. Um, and in... 1835, it moved from Kasali to Solan, near Shimla. And from the 1840s until the 1960s, Lion remained the number one beer in India for over a century. Um, after this, another uh, brand called Golden Eagle took the number one place for about uh, 20 years or so. And then the number one became Kingfisher, which we may be familiar with as a reasonably flavorless mass-produced lager <laughs> uh, which is a shame um <laughs> so line was originally the ipa but that changed in the 1960s to a lager so it was sort of it was the number one until the 1960s when it changed into a lager and then it just became like mass-produced lager stuff so india lost the ipa stuff as well really just a bit later than we did um the the sales declined it kind of fell into a bit of obscurity until 2001 um so it had they had still been supplying actually the indian army <laughs> through can the canteen <laughs> services department was really the only place you could get a lion beer and then in 2001 they sort of reinvigorated it and it was um it was sold to other companies so they've sort of relaunched in the North Indian market with new label designs and marketing campaigns, and they're trying to sort of, um, uh, yeah, find find new craft markets with it. But it's actually Sri Lankan now, so it's owned by Ceylon Beverage Holdings, which is based in Sri Lanka and partly owned, quarter owned in fact, by Carlsberg. So the, there's no escaping like the enormous mass market in India. Yeah. I have found. Um, also while I was, and I won't go down that road of like all the global companies that just produce stuff in India, cause in a way that's sort of hasn't moved on from the depressingness of the East India company. But I thought I would tell you <laughs> that Lion Brewing Company was that one that managed to emerge as an Indian company out of that experience. Um, while I was researching it though, it was, uh, my, my notes were getting confused with Lion Brewing Company which is um, a British company dating back to 1836 in London, where it was founded on the banks of the River Thames. 
And for over 100 years, it was producing ales that were then kind of shipped over. So there was also a lime brewing company doing the same, but doing that exports to India. Uh, that place was actually demolished in 1949. And it had two big lion statues outside of the brewery. And people loved the lion statues. They were like, oh, well, bye-bye brewery, but what about the poor lions? And at the request of King George VI, they were preserved. And you can still see them today. One of them is the South Bank Lion on Westminster Bridge. So on the South Side, we go over Westminster Bridge with the lion. That came from the Lion Brewery. And that is a great trivia fact. Isn't it? And the other one, um, also, you can still go and see. And that is at the entrance of Twickenham Stadium, the home of English rugby. So the, the Lions rugby uh, thing, that is also a, a brewery one. And it's the twin of the one on opposite the Houses of Parliament. So that's quite cool. It's recently been brought back to life, Lion, Brewing, uh, Lion Brewery Company, um, in 2018. It was sort of, it is, it was revived by British people. It does have a home in Britain, but it was the brewery that it's using was first set up in Singapore. So it's uh, it's one of those ones, but it does still exist. It exists again, as it were. Um, beer is not, I would say it's not culturally massive in India because Indians generally prefer to drink, drink stronger alcoholic drinks like whiskey. I mean, we know whiskey is massive in India, I think. I gave a fact on some previous podcast about how the biggest selling whiskey in the world is Indian. Um, so they prefer whiskey. It, different reasons, I suppose, like cultural taste. There is also a, a kind of darker side to that where you might suggest that it's because it's cheaper, it has higher alcohol content. Um, they do prefer strong beer when they drink beer in the 5 to 8% range rather than the weaker lagers that we might associate, like Kingfisher. Um, and in fact, the the strong alcohol counts for eighty three percent of the um, the total beer sales. Uh, but beer itself is only five percent of the total alcohol consumed in India. Just five percent. I think that really kind of makes you go, "Oh right, yeah, seriously, they don't drink that much they beer compared to yeah. compared to uh, uh, spirits." And that's probably because of you know there's there's higher cost less availability and also there's some quite strict regulations that i won't get into that are quite boring uh, but lots of regulations around beer in india so the modern craft beer movement so the us influenced as we might think of it came quite late to india the first brew pubs opened up in 2009 and one was in pune called dulale and one was in gurgaon arawal which is called Hausat. So Dulali and how's that? You heard of those? Have you heard of both of those terms? I mean, I hear how's that a lot in cricket. Yeah, I mean that that is it. It comes with. It's just how's that? How's that in in cricket? But obviously, India a massive fan of cricket, so that's just come from that. That mm. is colonial, one might say. Dulali, have you heard of Dulali? Yeah, it's. Is it a derogatory term for somebody that's like lost their mind? Yes, yes, it is. So. It actually comes from the town. It's not spelt the same way, but sort of pronounced the same way. The town uh, Dialali and in India. And that was the location of an army base and a sanatorium where the soldiers who were leaving India in the late 19th century were sent before they could come home. And um, they they often, they, they weren't well, probably not just because of 
um, PTSD, but because they contracted a fever um, mm-hmm. and, you know, malaria and so forth. And in, in Urdu, that word is called a tap. So they were said to have gone Dulali Tap, which, you know, mm-hmm. is a great name for a pub. <laughs> the Dulali Tap. <laughs> but but that's that's where it comes from. Yeah, it's um it's the it's the British term for people who have lost their minds and it was generally because of a fever and the camp that they had to stay at before they came home. But yeah. Um not so shit trivia today. <laughs> <laughs> um there is an Oktoberfest in Goa. <laughs> Let's go spreadsheet. Let's go up. <laughs> um, I, I've, I've seen some pictures. It looks great. It looks it looks small. It doesn't look like the big sort of month long Munich Oktoberfest. It's, it's essentially it's three days of electronic music festival that also has some beer oh. and food. But it looks it looks lovely, and it's been going since twenty eleven. <laughs> um, so yeah, they 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 do have some kind of pockets where you could go and enjoy your your beer, but it's not huge culturally. I will conclude my um, my assessment of IPA by saying, look, don't let my angry post-colonial rants make you think that you can't drink IPA. It is delicious and you should. But <laughs> but I will say I wouldn't be displeased if I saw the end of certain colonialist imagery associated with IPAs. There are quite a lot of Maharaja IPAs that you can buy that have pictures of sort of um, Indian leaders dressed up. And I think once you know that history, it might leave mm-hmm. the wrong kind of bitter taste in your mouth. I feel like there's no need for it. You can enjoy an IPA in the way it's made, understand the history. We don't have to still kind of use colonial imagery in a way that I think is is just not cool. No. Anything else from you? Um, would you like a world record? Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, <clears throat> it's a bit of an old one, so I don't know if it still stands, but it was so good I had to keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> so, it is the record for the most hop varieties in a single beer. And it was set in 2015 by Lone Rider Brewing Company in North Carolina. Would you like to hazard a guess as to how many hop varieties was in this beer? Oh, I mean, it's going to be something ridiculous. 20. Mm, no. <laughs> um, I think when I tell you the name of the beer, it might be a giveaway. Okay. <laughs> so it's an American IPA yep. and it's called The Magnificent 77. <gasps> Was it uh, 52? <sighs> Close. Nope. All right, great. <laughs> Uh, so yes, 77. It was a one-off release. Um, according to the brewing team, they wanted to bring some diversity to the current hop craze. So, you know, I mentioned about how the kind of craft breweries were just going a bit too wild. Yep. I think they were trying to... It, it, to me, it sounds like satire, but I do yeah. think they were taking it seriously. Um, they said, oh, we want to bring some diversity to the current hop craze where many beers are valued just because of the amount of hops and flavours in them. The hops we've used come from seven different countries and include many lesser-known strains that lots of people may not have experienced. The main difference is that this beer was never intended to melt your face off and overtake your palate with its hoppiness. Instead, it's a showcase of the wonderful world of hops. Um, They claim that the flavour of the ale changed constantly throughout the creation. They were adding seven hop additions during the boil and dry hop. Um... Every new day brought a new hop. 
So for a whole week, they added one new hop every day. Then they added 14 more varieties over the next week and then made up the 77. I don't know how. <laughs> they didn't say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a 7.7% American IPA and it was described as smelling like the tropics with flavours of mango, grapefruit, citrus and a hint of pineapple. Just, just a hint of pineapple amongst those 77 hops. Yeah. yeah, if you can taste past the hops, you might get some pineapple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you see how I did the proper etiquette when you asked me how many do I think of something and I went low and how you normally go mm. really high and then I have to bring the fact down? <laughs> yeah, so it's, yeah, I'll bear that in mind. I was, yeah, I behaved well. <laughs> <laughs> um I've got one I was going to throw into the mix, actually, just as a, an American bonus. I'll read you the description mm-hmm. and then you tell me if um, y- you can guess who it's from. Uh, it's a 7.5% malt-forward English-style pale ale, so essentially an IPA. Combining English and American grain with both bread and caramel notes completed a unique blend of American hops, which provide mild-free overtones and a complex, happy finish. Awarded the gold medal in 2013 World Beer Championships... Our flagship style was envisioned as a gateway into craft, going down easy but full of complexity and personality to convert the casual beer fan or please the most discerning craft drinker. Can you guess what band produced this beer? A band? Mm-hmm. Oh. Was it The Darkness? No. What if I told you the beer is called Mmm Hops? <laughs> Oh, I did not know they had a beer, and now I definitely want some. Yep. The band Hansen, <laughs> of Mbop fame, have an entire brewery with several ranges, and apparently they're very good. But yes, they've got, they've got essentially it's an IPA, they haven't called an IPA, the English style pale ale, but yeah, it's called Mhops. <laughs> Go try it. We have to order some. Put it, we have to. Put it on the spreadsheet. Spreadsheet. <laughs> that was my big finisher. Anything else from you? <laughs> No, I'm spent. That was great. The dibby dop bop boo wop. So our glasses have run dry, which means it's time that I pee. Cheers, everybody. <laughs> I do need a pee. I do, I so do I. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or fall, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go.